Welcome back to Mastering Retail, a new podcast series about how to succeed in the world of e-commerce. This podcast is brought to you by Digital Commerce at Essential. Continuing on our journey to winning on Amazon this season, today we're talking supply chain. Supply chain might not necessarily be the first thing you might think of when it comes to e-commerce, but how do you win on Amazon if you don't understand how products get to and from everywhere they need to go? You can't sell products if they don't make it to Amazon or your profits are plagued by chargebacks. In this episode, our guest is going to give you three key suggestions for maximizing your supply chain potential on Amazon, and we'll be breaking down supply chain on Amazon in general. How do products get to Amazon, to consumers, and beyond? Did you forget me? My name is Emma Irwin, your host for this series, and I am newer-ish to the e-commerce industry, But my day-to-day job when not working on this podcast is to help brands and manufacturers drive growth on Amazon at Flywheel Digital. Throughout this interview, you might be thinking that this all sounds super professional, but sometimes I'll randomly send us into the Star Wars galaxy with my mispronunciations. Why wouldn't Amazon want to allow you into being a 1P vendor? Vendor. Vendor. (laughs) Vendor. Vendor. To get us up to speed on understanding supply chain, I brought in an absolute supply chain expert this week who's going to teach us and give us his three key supply chain suggestions for manufacturers trying to win on Amazon. His name is Mike O'Donnell. I'm Mike O'Donnell. I'm Flywheel's VP of Client Services with a specific focus kind of on our retail side of our operations as well as our supply chain functions, which include deduction, clearing, third-party logistics, amongst other things. And this is how Mike got to where he is today. I feel like when I was younger, my teachers said the job you have one day might not even exist yet. And they were very right. Because when I got out of of school, I I certainly didn't expect to get into e-commerce. I was in marketing and in-store marketing for a while, a little bit of print marketing, uh, which I didn't see as the future. I saw an opportunity in e-commerce that I, I felt was the future at the time. And this was eight or so years ago, realizing how rapidly evolving this was. I came in through a marketing lens, wanting to learn about the marketing. And I just got sucked into all the details on driving sales and organic rank and how we can build out supply chain efficiency. I certainly didn't expect that I would become focused in supply chain in any way, shape or form. That wasn't my background. I didn't study supply chain. But again, I I think you can't decouple Amazon from supply chain at this point. They're so interwoven that if you want to win there, you have to be effective in the space. So I I think as I got involved there, uh, it just kept the energy moving in that direction. And now I thoroughly enjoy it. And I love talking to other experts in this area. Of course, I had to ask Mike about the last thing he had purchased on Amazon. I think the last thing I purchased on Amazon was a massive bag of dog treats. So my dog just had surgery. He's doing great, but he's wearing the cone of shame. So we're just trying to like throw treats at him to make him feel better about the fact that he is walking around with this massive cone on his face right now. My dog had to wear a cone a few weeks ago because he got bit, but he figured out that if he ran full force into a wall, the cone would break. And that's how he <laughs> that's how he got it off. And then he ate it. And so I had to buy him like one arm sleeve from Amazon. And that was one of my most frequent purchases is like the one arm because he wouldn't stop licking himself. But yeah, I tried many cones, ate them all, crashed into things so that the cones would break. I was like, why are you this smart, but also so dumb? Yeah, absolutely incredible. Dogs just have like this innate urge to make uh, recovering from surgery as hard as possible. And I had to prep him for answering a digital wishlist question for when we get to the end of the episode. 
I'm going to ask you a question now. We'll circle back to it at the end just so that we can kind of close it out. But something that's been kind of on your digital wish list, i.e. it's sat in a cart that you just won't actually purchase. So keep that on your brain and we'll circle back to it at the end. Okay, sounds good. Now here's where we'll really get going. I knew that I didn't need a definition of supply chain from Mike, but I did want him to give me a kind of intro to supply chain when it comes to Amazon. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, you know, supply chain is kind of the lifeblood of Amazon. I didn't get into uh, e-commerce expecting to be heavily focused on or an expert in supply chain. I think it kind of came to me because as we started digging into Amazon, there's really no way to decouple supply chain efficiency from Amazon. It's how they've established such a wide moat within the industry. Yes, pricing is a big piece of that and how they've been able to do that. But at the end of the day, the pricing comes from supply chain efficiency and their ability to offer the largest amount of products to consumers. So kind of all of those individual competitive advantages that Amazon has, I think if you break them down to some level would hit on a supply chain piece. And what that means for clients uh, is kind of two things. One, keeping up with Amazon supply chain is really, really difficult. It's expensive. It's challenging. And we frequently get feedback from our clients that we work with directly, which are usually CPG manufacturers. They'll give us that feedback that Amazon is our most expensive customer from a supply chain perspective. They're our most challenging customer. They push us the hardest to meet certain expectations in SLAs, and they've forced innovation faster than anyone else. I think Amazon might enjoy hearing that feedback, but they, uh, they've kind of pushed the industry forward quite a bit. And I think we can get into kind of the micro examples here in a little bit. But I think for a macro example, if you want to win on Amazon from a supply chain standpoint, you have to be nimble and willing to adjust in ways that will help lower your overall cost. Before going into the three key suggestions for maximizing your supply chain potential on Amazon, let's talk a little bit about how Amazon gets millions of products out to millions of consumers. I mean, today we can order almost everything and have it delivered right to our door, sometimes in a matter of hours. How does this work? It is a good question. Uh, very high efficiency. And I think a term that is going to become a heavy buzzword, if it's not already a heavy buzzword, is micro-fulfillment, right? The ability to reach the last mile in a segmented way. It's kind of a perfect storm right now with retail stores closing some of their locations, creating sort of the opportunity to jump into a dark store, which rather than being a 300,000-foot warehouse might be a 10,000-foot warehouse. But putting high-velocity SKUs in there would allow you to reach those consumers faster and more effectively in some of those harder-to-reach areas. So I think that's one thing that we're going to see continue and be a focus for Amazon. But also, it's all of the things they're doing to make their warehouses super efficient. It's the random sorting model they use to get products out quickly. It's the advanced robotics technology they're using to limit the amount of human touches. It's their push to direct fulfillment. I mean, transparently, that's one of the reasons Amazon's pushing manufacturers there is because it's faster for them. It gets the consumer the product oftentimes in two days, and they don't have to touch or hold it. So uh, I think it's kind of a collection of different items that Amazon has invested in to make that process as quick as possible. Why is it that sometimes when I get a package delivered to me from Amazon, sometimes it comes from UPS. Sometimes it comes from a random guy in a car. Sometimes it comes from a prime truck. What is going on? Good question. <laughs> well, for a while, Amazon didn't have the option to send you a prime truck. They had to use third-party providers there. And as they've kind of developed their service, they've realized the benefit to building out a consolidated shipping partner themselves. I was actually touring a warehouse a few weeks ago, and they mentioned that they've seen an incredible rise in the number of Amazon-specific trucks that have shown up at their warehouse to pick up. It was something like 
You know, it used to be 30-70 and that ratio is flipped, which I thought was pretty wild. Sidebar here. As you can hear, I think a lot about how the majority of things I search on Amazon can be delivered to me within a day or two and sometimes even faster. One of our guests in this podcast even had hard-boiled eggs and Nespresso pods delivered in a matter of hours from two different retailers. Check out Amanda Wolf in the episode before this as a little plug there. How is that even possible? I asked Mike if FCs or fulfillment centers somehow just have everything. So they're not necessarily in every FC everywhere. I think that every vendor we work with would give up and stop working with Amazon if they had to ship to all of them. But um, there's a few reasons why. I think the most obvious would be kind of like the hub and spoke model, right? So Amazon's going to have some FCs in certain locations around the country that are going to be larger and some that are going to be smaller and focused on high velocity items. We have one here in Baltimore that is one of our larger FCs, but we also have sort of a spoke FC. So the way Amazon will structure this, and I don't know what the advanced algorithm on their back end is, but they have some way to determine which FCs within the US can be stocked and still be able to reach consumers within that one to two day window. They're intentionally going to place inventory in those FCs and will occasionally transship them to some of these smaller FCs. A transshipment, by the way, is just when you're shipping from one FC to another. That'll allow them to continue to consolidate shipments into larger truck sizes, which obviously adds efficiency for them but then allows them to get that product to more places more efficiently to then get to you faster. So the short answer is they're not everywhere. They're just very smart about where they place high velocity items versus some of the slower velocity items. So far, we've covered Amazon getting products to consumers. And now it's time for Mike to give us his three supply chain suggestions for manufacturers trying to win on Amazon. These go quick, but Mike will talk more about them throughout the podcast because it's one thing to list off a bunch of suggestions, and it's an entirely different thing to actually implement suggestions. They're going to be a little bit high level here. I would say be nimble, be ready to make those changes, be open-minded. This is going to be a different platform than anywhere else you've worked. So don't say the way we've done things in the past is going to dictate the way we're going to do things in the future. And third, again, we mentioned it earlier, but data integrity makes all the difference here when it comes to avoiding fees and making sure that products are shipped in and set up correctly. So. I would say if you are nimble, open-minded, and your data is clean, you're building the foundation of being able to set up a, an efficient supply chain. So we covered Mike's three supply chain suggestions for success and how Amazon gets the product to consumers. Now we need to cover how manufacturers get their products to Amazon. And this can be incredibly complicated. And not only that, but it totally differs depending on whether you're first party or third party. As a reminder, First-party vendors are vendors who Amazon orders products from, and then the vendor sends the products to Amazon while Amazon handles the customer service and shipping aspect. Third-party sellers can send products into Amazon to utilize Amazon shipping services, or they can ship products directly to consumers with more control over price and customer service, and Amazon doesn't place orders for those products. I let Mike take it from here. There are a few different ways that a manufacturer can get products to Amazon. And it's going to differ a little bit, 1P3P, but even within those segments, there are different ways and different options of what you can do. So I'd say the most common way, if you're a 1P, which of course means that you're working directly with Amazon, would be for Amazon to send you a purchase order, which tells you what they want. Then they come and they pick up those units from your warehouse and they will deliver them back to their warehouse to then eventually make it to the end consumer. And that relationship, as soon as they come and pick it up, it's Amazon's responsibility to keep moving forward with that. The alternate option there that's very similar, if you have a very sophisticated supply chain yourself, you can opt to get the products to Amazon's warehouses. 
Uh, most people or most manufacturers choose not to do that because Amazon has a very sophisticated supply chain and they have a ton of fulfillment centers. You're not going to have the option of which ones you want to go to. You're going to be sent wherever Amazon wants to send you. So a lot of times it's more effective to have Amazon pick up. There's a third option and there's some other kind of micro options within that I'll avoid uh, like pallet ordering and full truckload versus less than truckload. But you can basically ship directly to a consumer. That would be called either direct fulfillment or drop ship. Used to be very uncommon for a direct relationship, but it's something that's definitely picking up steam. So that's a, an experience where you can actually use Amazon's payment code and take advantage of Amazon shipping rates to get the product directly to the consumer, which has a few benefits. In addition to being faster, it takes touch points out of Amazon's process, which they like, and can sometimes be more cost effective. So you can even take products that would be unprofitable on Amazon and in some cases actually shift them to being profitable by shipping that way. Next, we get into 3P logistics. On the 3P side, there's really two models. There's FBA, filmed by Amazon, which is more similar to the traditional model. You send it to Amazon, and then Amazon gets it to the consumer. Benefit there is you get prime shipping. Then there's also the option of shipping it directly to consumer FBM, which is essentially that dropship model we just talked about, right? It's very similar to the 1P dropship model to go through that option but it's in many cases more expensive because you don't get to take advantage of Amazon shipping rates. So the long story short is Amazon has created many different options for us to get the product to consumer. The biggest difference between 1P and 3P is going to be control. On the 3P side, I can send Amazon however many units I want. On the 1P side, I need to wait for Amazon to send me that order before I can choose how many units I'm shipping. So there are some ways that Amazon is bridging that gap. Similarly to the way they're making 1P options more available for getting the product directly to the consumer, whereas previously that was primarily a 3P process, they're also creating opportunities for vendors to control their shipments in a little bit more through the Born to Run program. So some of the challenges that previously existed on 1P that were advantages to 3P, Amazon's breaking that gap a little bit. Other than control, why wouldn't everyone want to be a 1P? That seems a lot more simple when it comes to supply chain. Well, you're right. In some ways, it's a little bit easier because you don't have to plan the forecasting. Amazon kind of forecasts on your behalf, which is nice. I think that some vendors don't have the option, right? Some manufacturers can't get in. I don't know if you've experienced a situation where maybe a, a third party vendor wanted to sell on Vendor Central, but Amazon didn't invite them in. So that's one challenge. Historically, it's been a pretty big challenge that not having that control over being able to ship products in. And I think kind of the bigger picture here is that there are a lot of reasons outside of supply chain why someone might want to do a 3P versus a 1P. Pricing is probably the biggest one. And uh, if you want to have more control over the price the consumer sees, a lot of times 1P can be a really challenging situation. Why wouldn't Amazon want to allow you into being a 1P vendor? Vendor. <laughs> vendor. Well, it'll add quite a bit of additional touch point on the Amazon side. As much as they've moved 1P to being hands off the wheel, there's still, you know, a little bit more human involvement on their side to make those relationships work. Whereas 3P, it's much more independent of the Amazon team. It also takes a lot of cost pressure out of their warehouse. So if you can imagine, if I'm shipping it into 1P, Amazon's taking control of that inventory. And if it sits there for two months, it sits there for two months. And they have to eat that and they eat that space. We're talking about supply chain today. So you can probably imagine why that's frustrating for them because they want to be so hyper-focused on that. On the 3P side, the manufacturers who are sending that inventory in, they're paying to keep that inventory space. So it kind of hedges Amazon's bet. It allows them to not be as on the hook for the cost of inventory. 
that was a lot of information. Let's take a small break. Okay, let's hear about how the ongoing supply chain crisis is affecting manufacturers on Amazon. There's a lot of reasons for supply chain crisis right now. Some of the inefficiencies of COVID added a lot of cost into shipping internationally um, and getting materials and sourcing materials. Obviously, we have a lot of geopolitical things happening right now that are limiting some supply chain items. We have inflation kind of broadly everywhere. That's a factor of that. So there are many, many reasons why vendors are feeling that crunch. I'd say that some of that cost is getting pushed through to Amazon and ultimately the consumer in the way of price increases. That's kind of the, the micro element of inflation that's happening in real time. I think we're also seeing inventory challenges. And this brings up a really good recommendation here, which is to make sure that your marketing teams are clued in to what's happening on your supply chain. I think there's an obvious item here where you're, you might be driving marketing to a product that's out of stock, and there's going to be no benefit to doing that. But there's also something to be said about driving traffic to a product that has limited stock, and we think we could sell through in the same period of time without marketing, right? Just because something is normally benefiting from marketing on a regular basis doesn't mean that in this next three-month window, if we know we're only going to be able to get a certain number of units, uh, we should be pushing just as hard to sell those products. If you can keep that margin and still sell through those units and focus that marketing on a different product, it's going to pay dividends for your bottom line. We're going to cover one more pretty technical aspect of supply chain with Amazon, and that's the importance of POs, or purchase orders. This is how Amazon orders products from a first-party vendor, but there can be some pain points when it comes to POs, especially with chargebacks, where Amazon can and will charge you for doing things like not sending the product in the correct packaging, even at the cardboard shipping box level, not sending the number of products in a box that you said you would, labeling a box wrong, and other things like that. First and foremost, I feel like there are a lot of people who think chargebacks are out of their control and it's a cost of doing business with Amazon. To some degree, that's accurate, but I don't want anyone out there to throw their hands up in the air and say, uh, there's nothing I can do about these. There are a lot of things that can be done to reduce chargebacks. First and foremost, we mentioned direct fulfillment or shipping directly to the consumer. That will significantly, if not completely, eliminate chargebacks. There's really only one chargeback you can get there, and that's not shipping it or shipping it late. If you're doing a traditional 1P model, there are a slew of chargebacks that could potentially hit your business related to packaging, receiving, shipping time, et cetera. What we like to do when we kind of sit down with a client is just walk through exactly what the causes of those chargebacks are. And uh, we're fortunate to have a lens where we've seen other vendors. And if you talk to other flywheelers on this podcast, you'll probably hear this phrase, but we've died every death. When it comes to chargebacks, we've seen it all. So we're able to kind of digest and look at how we can do that more effectively. The other option would be to ship to 3P. So on the 3P side, there aren't chargebacks, which is nice. Again, you have to pay for more handling fees, more holding fees, inventory fees, but you kind of get the benefit of not dealing with chargebacks. I will add that sometimes product gets lost on the 3P side. That's kind of what I think of as the 3P chargeback. It's the cost of doing business on the 3P side. Mike hinted at manufacturers maybe thinking incorrectly about chargebacks. So I asked him if there's anything else supply chain related that the best approach isn't always considered for. Good question. Yes, and I feel like we could talk forever about this. I'll keep it to some, some really simple ones for anyone who's listening and wondering what they can do quickly. First of all, check your data. I think that significant portion of our chargebacks and shortages, which is when a product arrives in a different quantity than expected, a lot of those occur because of unit of measure issues, weights, dimensions, 
those things can really mess up Amazon's receiving process. So before we go into hiring up and you know trying to totally reevaluate our shipping process, let's make sure the data is clean. The next thing I would say, I think that on the first party side, everyone hears shipping directly to a consumer and they think high cost, inefficient process because that's how historically it has been. And they're probably used to a 3P FBM model, which is very expensive. But Amazon's built a lot of efficiency into that process. And because you can now use Amazon's rates, I would say that a lot of times a 1P dropship scenario makes a lot of sense if a product is high price point and light, or if it's crept out, if it's very small and light. And there's a variety of different reasons why dropship we're seeing making a lot more sense from a first party perspective. You mentioned keeping your data clean. And because I have to deal with a lot of supply chain inefficiencies in terms of the data that's in Amazon, such as your dimensions, does not actually match what the manufacturer has on file in their own system. Do you have any advice on keeping that, like the syndication of data, which I believe is like the GDSN kind of thing, but keeping the data clean, how do you do that when there's so many different like parties involved and EDI, things like that? At any time we can pull from Amazon the backend data that's building out your product information, we can use that as a check to see what's accurate and inaccurate. Really, if your uh, Amazon data is matching what's in your ERP system, typically EDI is okay. That's not something that's going to cause issues. The biggest issue we see there is unit of measure. So I would say just sitting down and looking at the difference between your each inner and case dimensions to make sure that everything is aligned between those two systems. One big watch out with that is barcodes. If you're trying to sell the same product in different sizes and everything uses the same outer G10 barcode, very common issue why we'd see shortages or chargebacks. So if you are looking to sell the same product different ways, just be tight as to what your labeling situation is and make sure that there's no situation where Amazon could incorrectly grab a product and think it's a different product. The last supply chain topic we're going to cover here is what's the word on the street when it comes to Amazon supply chain? What's hot off the press right now? One thing that I've been hearing about almost weekly recently is the need for kitting. So currently, our manufacturers have a size that they ship to in bulk usually, and then a size that they ship to in a traditional retailer where you'd be buying one unit. There are a lot of situations where that does not make sense online. A single roll of electrical tape is probably not going to be the most efficient thing to ship to a consumer, but how many people need 12 rolls of electrical tape? You might need three rolls of electrical tape. The challenge here is that traditional uh, manufacturers oftentimes do not have quite as nimble of a supply chain to make shifts like that uh, when they're building out the line or building shipments. So what I find always is that in the e-commerce world, one of the ways to win and stay ahead is to be nimble. And I believe some of the risks of building out some of those lines are being perceived as overshadowing the benefits when really they aren't. One of the cool things about Amazon and something that I like to always highlight to, to manufacturers who I work with is that it's one of the most powerful product research tools in the world. You can go to any keyword at any time and you can see the price that makes sense, the product size that makes sense. You can see what consumers are converting on just by the organic rank. So if you see that a three pack of your product is selling effectively next to your one pack and you don't offer that, that's a very low risk move, right? You can shift over, you can create that product and kit. I wanna encourage anyone who's finding themselves in that situation to really push for innovation in their warehouse to create those separate packs. I know that if needed, there's other like third-party providers you can go to to do that if it's a need that you're not able to build out internally and at least test that scenario to see if it's worth building and adding to the product line. And I want to end this episode with two great messages from Mike. 
They're about using supply chain to reduce your costs. That's number one. I do think vendors are very aware of kind of the importance of supply chain efficiency. There are so many different ways to grow top line on a business on Amazon and improve your top line. There are only so many ways to pull cost out of the equation. And supply chain is likely the largest way to pull cost out of that equation because it's one of the biggest cost centers we have. So if there are ways that we can pull even a small amount of cost out of that process, a lot of times that is uh, very attractive to manufacturers and the, to their leadership as a way to improve overall EBITDA. And the second is openness to change while recognizing that change in this space can be really, really difficult. I think manufacturers are very open to the need to make changes here. I think they're just a little harder to make. And I think that's understandable. One thing I don't want to come across uh, in this interview is that making changes on supply chain is easy. And that's part of the reason why I think being nimble is so important, because these are physical, tactical changes. It might require changes in the number of staff you have. It might require changes in the way your entire warehouse is organized. It might require bringing on a third-party partner. Like these are, these are not as simple as clicking a button and switching the way your product is showing to the consumer. So the costs associated with making these changes are real. And I think that cost analysis needs to be done to make sure that these are going to be efficient changes. And actually, lastly, we are back to his digital wish list. I hope my wife, Janie, listens to this one. We just bought a house outside of the city. Uh, it's a little bit of a fixer-upper, and I've convinced myself that I can do more than I can. So I frequently purchase like, oh, here's like a little jackhammer. Oh, here's like a little hedge trimmer. I'll do my own gardening. And then I really think about it, and I say, mm, maybe I should wait until I move in and see how easy that is. So I think I've been fooling myself quite a bit, specifically this month, on what I should be buying in terms of home improvement tools. Lastly, we talk a lot about dogs so far in a lot of our interviews. How did the dogs in the office make you feel? Do you like dogs in the office? I'm a big dog person. I have two dogs, about 200 pounds of dog at our house right now. They have very different personalities that I really enjoy. So if it was up to me, there'd be 12 dogs in the office every day, as long as they're not barking or uh, causing any mischief, which is exactly the reason why my dogs don't come into the office. <laughs> but I do enjoy it. I, I, you know, it's a nice pick me up. Or they can like move tables and like knock over vases. I've had that happen before. <laughs> Again, not a value play to buy a large dog, right? You're going to add no. <laughs> more cost into your life by doing that. You just have to love uh, having them around. For sure. That wraps up another episode of Mastering Metail. I don't think I even have to ask you if you learned something here because I'm sure you did. I hope I shed some light and invoked some curiosity on supply chain and brought some knowledge to continue us forward on our journey. Our next topic will be data. Ooh. Join me next time to dig into how to leverage data to be unbeatable on Amazon. If you're enjoying this podcast, and I know you are if you made it here, please spread the word and continue to follow us. You can reach me at emma.erwin@essential.com or on LinkedIn. This episode was produced by Klaus Cancel with sound design by Ina Satenji. Until next time, take care and don't forget about your supply chain. <laughs>